The government's deprivation of life, liberty, or property is legitimate only if preceded by certain procedural protections, better known as due process of law. This includes reasonable notice of the rules so citizens can know and follow them. But a 1947 Supreme Court decision gave the burgeoning administrative state the ability to create new rules with retroactive application through a process known as adjudication. A dissent by Justice Robert Jackson, who was no enemy of the administrative state, lambasted the court for failing to scrutinize this action. I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and this week on DIST, we're looking at SEC versus Chenery. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. Justice Felix Frankfurter once wrote, The history of American freedom is, in no small measure, the history of procedure. It is fundamentally wrong for the government to take your life, liberty, or property unless it fairly demonstrates you have done something wrong. The process provided matters as much as the quantity or quality of the government's proof. From popular movies, books, and television programs, crime junkies know many of the steps the police and prosecutors must follow to successfully arrest and convict a criminal defendant. In the civil justice system, the penalties are generally less severe. Dissidents, you're probably wondering who that was. Let me introduce my colleague, John Kirkhoff. He's a litigator in PLF's Separation of Powers Practice Group. Before entering the legal profession, he worked as a reporter with the West Virginia Radio Corporation. But, as John was saying... In the civil justice system, the same general principle applies. The government must prove its case, in a court of law, with fair procedures before it may lawfully deprive you of your life, liberty, or property. These due process of law principles have a long history in the Anglo-American judicial system, traceable back to at least 1215, when a group of English barons rebelled against King John's abuses. Magna Carta, which means Great Charter, ended the rebellion by guaranteeing certain basic liberties. Its Clause 39 has been recognized as the most important predecessor of modern due process doctrine, providing that no free man shall be seized or imprisoned, or stripped of his rights or possessions, or outlawed or exiled, or deprived of his standing in any other way, nor will we proceed with force against him, or send others to do so, except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. Further, the meaning of due process of law was guided by the increasing separation of lawmaking from the enforcement interpretation of law. From as early as the 14th century, legal historians have observed due process of law consistently referred to the guarantee of legal judgment in a case by an authorized court in accordance with settled law. It entailed an exercise of what came to be known as the judicial power to interpret and apply standing law to a specific legal dispute. In short, the government's deprivation of liberty or property is legitimate only if preceded by certain procedural protections characteristic of judicial process. Codifying these rule of law principles imported from English law, our Constitution guarantees due process of law. The Due Process Clause is a cornerstone of our Bill of Rights, the promise of which was essential to the ratification of the Constitution itself. The Due Process Clause incorporates several protections to ensure that government power is exercised only through lawful means. 
Government must provide reasonable notice of what the rules are so that citizens can know and follow them. As Justice Scalia once explained, rudimentary justice requires that those subject to the law must have the means of knowing what it prescribes. It is said that one of Emperor Nero's nasty practices was to post his edicts high on the columns so that they would be harder to read and easier to transgress. When the government seeks to punish, it must give fair notice of the charges and the evidence supporting them. Cases must be decided solely based on reliable evidence, and the defendant must be given an opportunity to contest the evidence against him. The government bears the burden of proving alleged wrongdoing. The citizen must always be presumed innocent. Available punishments must be proportional to the alleged wrong. Rather than arbitrarily severe to coerce defendants, cases must be decided by an independent and neutral judge, and government power must be exercised only through means that preserve democratic accountability. Although many of the cases interpreting this guarantee have been about due process of law in court, due process principles also apply to the executive branch's law enforcement and adjudication. The last episode explored the need for democratic accountability for bureaucrats charged with helping the president carry out the law. In this episode, we'll look at one way regulatory agencies fail to provide due process of law. Not all agencies were created equally. Some, like the Social Security Administration and Department of Veteran Affairs, primarily handle the distribution of government benefits and pose little to no threat to Americans' individual liberty. But others have accumulated legislative, executive, and judicial functions. You know, the thing James Madison pronounced the very definition of tyranny. These agencies issue regulations that bind the public, enforce those regulations, and then settle disputes involving those regulations in their very own in-house courts. In short, they act as lawmaker, prosecutor, judge, and jury. And given a development by the Supreme Court in 1947, which we'll discuss in short order, issuing regulations isn't the only way agencies set policy. Some agencies set policy through adjudication. What do rulemaking and adjudication look like? We asked Joe Pastel, a professor at Hillsdale College and author of Bureaucracy in America, the Administrative State's Challenge to Constitutional Government, to explain. So in the modern administrative state, when an agency engages in rulemaking, it is often creating new legal requirements, new norms, new legal rules that are uh, required for regulated parties to follow if they don't want to be fined or otherwise run afoul of the law. Creating new legal rules sounds like another way of saying... It's the creation of new law, even though we don't want to call it law because that would implicate some important constitutional questions. So if rulemaking looks like the creation of new law and therefore kind of looks like a quasi-legislative power, adjudication is the application of some standard either in the statute or in rules to specific cases. So it kind of looks like the judicial power. It looks like the application of general law or general principles to specific cases. Adjudication can be traced all the way back to our nation's earliest days. For example... In 1792, Congress provided a process for compensating disabled veterans, but it's complicated, so please permit this brief frolic and detour. Congress charged the circuit courts with adjudicating veterans' claims and recommending which ones the Secretary of War should pay out. The courts bristled at Congress assigning judges non-judicial duties. 
A few cases eventually went up to the Supreme Court, and ultimately, in the 1794 case, United States versus Yale Todd, the court rejected this setup. Some legal historians argue this was the first instance of the court invalidating a federal statute on constitutional grounds. Mind you, this was nine years before the court allegedly established that very power in the landmark ruling Marbury versus Madison. Others say that's not exactly what happened. In any event, Congress amended the law, taking judges out of the process entirely. This goes to show that the history of adjudication is messy. But back to the issue at hand. How exactly do agencies use adjudication to set policy if they're simply applying a standard set by their governing statute or an applicable regulation, courtesy of a 1947 Supreme Court decision? But before we get to that decision, actually two decisions, some background, we have to go back to the 1930s. Following the Wall Street crash of 1929, Congress created the Securities and Exchange Commission and tasked it with protecting investors, maintaining fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitating capital formation. The SEC was put in charge of enforcing a variety of securities laws, including the Public Utility Company Holding Act, or PUCA, to regulate the structure and activities of public utility holding companies. And what are those? Here's John Barrett, a professor at St. John's University Law School, a fellow at the Robert H. Jackson Center, and three-time disc guest. PUCA was about utility companies, electric companies, and the great concentration that had developed in that field, monopoly pricing power, etc., and basically gave the SEC power to break up some of these holding companies. Joe Pastel put it another way. If you've ever played the board game Monopoly, you know, there's that space, the electric company. This is a big aspect of the economy is the generation of electric power at this time in the 1930s, which is when PUCA is passed. And so these companies, which kind of hold controlling interest in these companies, these public utility companies, they are these holding companies. And so they had really complex corporate structures. It was not entirely clear who had a controlling stake in the companies. And so the goal of PUCA is basically to just force every company to dissolve and reorganize itself. And when it did so, it had to submit its reorganization plan to the Securities and Exchange Commission, which essentially had veto power over the reorganization. And if the SEC exercised that veto power? It could reject any reorganization it deemed to be unfair or inequitable. And that's a, that's a direct term from the statute. It had to be fair and equitable or the SEC would strike down the reorganization. That brings us to the Chinnery case. Christopher Chinnery was one of the directors of the Federal Water Service Corporation, a Delaware holding company that owns securities of subsidiaries operating water, gas, electric, and other properties. The corporation voluntarily reorganized under PUCA. We previously mentioned that the SEC enforced PUCA, but it also enforces laws against insider trading. You'll see why that's important in a minute. Back to Joe Pastel. Chenery got to this stage because he submits this reorganization plan to the SEC, and the SEC keeps rejecting his reorganization plan. What happens that forces the SEC or induces the SEC to strike down the plan is that Chenery owns a controlling share in the company because he owns all the Class B shares. Uh, and the SEC wanted essentially all shares that were not preferred stock to be dissolved. So whatever the reorganization plan looked like, it basically had to grant ownership in the reorganized company only to people who owned shares of preferred stock. Uh, the reason for this is that the preferred stockholders were owed a lot of back dividends. 
And so the SEC thought it was unfair for people who didn't hold the preferred stock to own part of the new company. Well, Chenery owned enough of the old company through his Class B shares to control the company. So he realizes early on, the SEC is not going to allow me to own these Class B shares in the new company. So I better start buying the preferred stock because that seems to be what the SEC wants to, to transfer into the new company. So he buys shares of preferred stock on the open market. He reports his shares to the Securities and Exchange Commission. He complies with all of the relevant legal requirements because there's obviously a separate insider trading regulatory scheme that the SEC is administering along with PUCA. And so he's perfectly in compliance with the law. He's not committing fraud or insider trading. The Washington Post reported that during the reorganization, the Chenery family and other directors bought 11,600 shares of the federal preferred stock on the open market for roughly $330,000. And under the terms of the reorganization, they were able to swap this preferred for common stock with a book value of over $1.1 million. The SEC blocked that and ordered them to turn the preferred over to the new company for the cost, plus accrued dividends. So what happened next? Here's more from Joe. And so he submits his reorganization plan to the SEC, and the SEC says, well, we think that anybody who owns preferred stock should have its preferred stock also granted ownership in the new company. But we don't think Christopher Chenery's preferred stock should be transferred into the new company. In other words, they said, we will approve any reorganization that grants uh, ownership to all the preferred stockholders not named Chenery in the new company. And Chenery wants to figure out why the SEC has has forced this requirement on him because he did everything above board, right? He did everything openly and fairly and in compliance with law. So the SEC arranges a meeting with Chenery and they say, we understand you have not done anything wrong, but if we let anybody who buys stock during a reorganization get that stock in the new company, this could be taken advantage of by future participants in this reorganization uh, scheme. And so we have to basically say that you can't own the stock in the new company. Chenery does not uh, agree with the SEC's decision here, and so he challenges it in court. The case ended up going to the Supreme Court. And what did the SEC argue? Here's Joe. The SEC apparently argues, uh, we think it's a well-established rule of law that you cannot buy stock during a reorganization if you're a manager of a company. And the SEC brought forth some legal authorities, apparently, in defense of this rule. But the legal authorities did not establish that the SEC produced did not establish this rule. And so essentially, the SEC made up this rule out of thin air, applied it to Chenery, not in a rule and then in an adjudication, but simply in an adjudication. The Supreme Court didn't buy this argument, and it ruled against the SEC four to three. Here's John Barrett with the details. So this is Chenery one in February of 1943. It's a plurality decision. The court is a short court. Only seven justices are there to participate because Justice Burns had resigned from the court and his seat had not yet been filled. And Justice Douglas, who had been chairman of the SEC, recuses. So there are seven justices and Chenery one is four to three uh, with Justice Felix Frankfurter writing for the court saying that although courts have equitable powers to sort of do right in a situation, including for appearances, an administrative agency and the SEC particularly does not. So this sell the stock order grounded in equitable theories is beyond the SEC's power as an administrative agency. Justice Frankfurter wrote, 
Before transactions otherwise legal can be outlawed or denied their usual business consequences, they must fall under the ban of some standard of conduct prescribed by an agency of government authorized to prescribe such standards, either the courts or Congress or an agency to which Congress has delegated its authority. Frankfurter continued, Congress itself did not prescribe the respondents' purchases of preferred stock in federal. Established judicial doctrines do not condemn these transactions, nor has the commission, acting under the rulemaking powers, promulgated new general standards of conduct. It purported merely to be applying an existing judge-made rule of equity. The commission's determination can stand, therefore, only if it found that the specific transactions under scrutiny showed misuse by the respondents of their position as reorganization managers. The record is utterly barren of any such showing. Indeed, such a claim against the respondents was explicitly disavowed by the commission. So what's the takeaway from this decision, better known as Chenery 1? Here's Joe Pastel. There are two readings of Chenery 1, one of which didn't survive. The Chenery 1 reading that I think actually makes the most sense, if you read the opinion, is the SEC has to make up a rule before it applies that rule in a specific case, or it has to rely on a pre-existing rule that came from, say, a statute or common law. So you either have to have statutory authority, rulemaking authority, or some other legal authority as the basis of an adjudication. You can't make up the law as you enforce it. And the court's opinion in Chenery 1 seems like that's the argument that the court is making. The other argument, and this is what has survived as the Chenery 1 principle today in administrative law, is an agency has to rely on the arguments that it made at the time that it made the decision rather than offer post hoc rationalizations after it made the decision. So Chenery prevailed. But that wasn't the end of the story. Chenery resubmits his plan after he wins Chenery 1. He says, okay, great. Now I can resubmit my reorganization plan. I get ownership in the new company. And the SEC says, no, actually, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to reject your reorganization plan. As John Barrett explained. The SEC largely follows the fairly cynical dissenting opinion that Justice Hugo Black had written for the three dissenters in Chenery 1, where Justice Black, in effect, said, just explain it differently. Get rid of this equitable power stuff claim that it's fact-finding and adjudicate this as bad behavior by the Chenery Corporation officers and order them to divest their stock. And so on remand, the SEC basically does that, which is maybe thumbing its nose a bit at the Supreme Court. The case went back to the Supreme Court, but this time around, it was a very different court. The court decided Chenery 1 in February 1943, and it decided Chenery 2 in June 1947. And in those few years, a lot had changed. Here's John Barrett with the details. The Chief Justice, Harlan Fisk Stone, who had been part of Chenery 1, had died. He'd been replaced by Fred Vinson, but in Chenery 2, Vinson recused because he'd been Secretary of the Treasury and before that a judge of the D.C. Circuit, and he'd been involved in PUCA implementation and insider trading policymaking and so forth, as as best we can guess. So that's, you know, one part of the Chenery majority that has disappeared. Also, Justice Owen Roberts, who was another of the four votes in Chenery 1, had quit the court, um, really in disgust, had literally like quit the court and stormed out and said, I'm done with you people in the summer of 1945. And he had been replaced by Justice Harold Burton, 
So of the four in Chenery one, really all that's left by Chenery two is Frankfurter and Jackson. In the other camp, the three dissenters in Chenery one, Hugo Black, Stanley Reed, and Frank Murphy, are now joined by Wiley Rutledge, who was appointed that very short number of weeks after Chenery one, filling the Burns seat, and by, in the end, Justice Burton, who succeeded Justice Roberts. So the three dissenters of Chenery one turn out to be a constellation of five in Chenery two. Justice Frank Murphy wrote the opinion, which is joined in full by three other justices, and Justice Harold Burton concurred in the judgment. And what did Murphy say in the plurality opinion? As John Barrett put it, It's a bit of a stew of an opinion. And to try and, you know, sort of outline it or figure out what the actual ground of Chenery 2 is, is a challenge or is impossible. Joe Pastel summed it up. The court says, essentially, uh, the SEC can rely on rulemaking or adjudication to formulate legal requirements that we're not going to insist upon a rigid rule to the contrary. And this has become known as the Chenery 2 principle, that agencies can decide to promulgate rules through adjudication uh, or rulemaking, that the courts will not dictate the policymaking form that the agency uh, has to go through. Justice Murphy explained away the Chinnery 1 ruling, writing, But we did not mean to imply that the failure of the commission to anticipate this problem and to promulgate a general rule withdrew all power from that agency to perform its statutory duty in this case, to hold that the commission had no alternative in this proceeding but to approve the proposed transaction would be to stultify the administrative process. He continued, Problems may arise in a case which the administrative agency could not reasonably foresee, problems which must be solved despite the absence of a relevant general rule. Or, the agency may not have had sufficient experience with a particular problem to warrant rigidifying its tentative judgment into a hard and fast rule. Or, the problem may be so specialized and varying in nature as to be impossible of capture within the boundaries of a general rule. There is thus a very definite place for the case-by-case evolution of statutory standards, and the choice made between proceeding by general rule or by individual ad hoc litigation is one that lies primarily in the informed discretion of the administrative agency. Turning to the dissent, something unusual happened. Here's John Barrett. On that Monday, June 23, 1947, the court handed down over 15 opinions. And, you know, the the writing process, the editing process that was leading up to that was, of course, total all-nighters and chaos and et cetera. And so in the Chenery 2 case, what Jackson and Frankfurter note is simply their dissenting votes. And they file a joint statement that says uh, there is not now opportunity for a response adequate to the issues raised by the court's opinion. These concern the rule of law in its application to the administrative process and the function of this court in reviewing administrative action. Accordingly, the detailed grounds for this dissent will be filed in due course. Jackson spent the summer holed up at Hickory Hill, his estate in Northern Virginia, writing the dissent. In July, he sent a draft to Frankfurter. Joe Pastel summed up Frankfurter's response. But Frankfurter writes this great letter to to Jackson where he says, your Chenery 2 opinion is a rip snorter or a sock doliger, words that I had to go look up in the dictionary after I'd read them. 
In case you don't have a dictionary handy, calling it a rip snorter means it was extraordinary, and a sock dolliger is a forceful blow. But as Joe was saying... And he really encourages Jackson to publish it, to not tone down the rhetoric, uh, but to be very clear about the principle here that's being violated. And John Barrett pointed out, Jackson and Frankfurter were pals. There's a Bob and Felix buddy movie that's part of this. They were each other's closest friend on the court. They had served together from Jackson's appointment in 1941, which was two years into Frankfurter's tenure on the court. And Frankfurter outlived Jackson. So for all of Jackson's time on the court, Felix was there and they were, you know, sort of simpatico. They, you know, kind of hit it off as personalities and in their kind of approach to judicial work. When the justices returned in the fall, Justice Jackson read his dissent from the bench on the first day of the new term. As John Barrett put it, This is a barn burner of a start to October term 1947. In an article titled, Two High Court Justices File Acid Dissent, Washington Post reporter Dillard Stokes wrote, Justices Jackson and Frankfurter yesterday accused the Supreme Court of encouraging administrative lawlessness. As Chief Justice Vinson and his colleagues settled into their chairs for the fall term, the first business was Jackson's announcement of a stinging dissent. Jackson said, with Frankfurter joining him, that the majority backed up administrative authoritarianism with false facts and double talk. So what did Jackson say in his dissent? As John Barrett recounted, He begins by saying, you know, in explicit terms, the only thing that's changed from Chenery 1 to Chenery 2 is the membership of the court. And what's now a majority contains what he calls a shift in attitude between that of the controlling membership of the court when the case was first here and those who have the power of decision on this second review. He basically is saying there's no there there. Um, When you look at the court's explanation for why it's approving the SEC's order that the Chenery officers must sell this stock, Jackson's pointing out that the court's opinion, Murphy's opinion in Chenery 2, says this isn't compelled by the statute and that there isn't a regulation that the SEC has promulgated that, you know, is the basis for this action, and that there's not any factual finding for an agency adjudication that is the basis for this order. And nonetheless, missing sort of any of those appropriate footings, the majority has concluded in Chenery 2 that the judiciary should defer to the expertise of the SEC in ordering this stock sale. But as Justice Jackson pointed out, the SEC's expertise was questionable. Here's John Barrett. So Jackson's basic point, and I'll quote one of his fairly blistering sentences. He says, the court's reasoning adds up to this. The commission must be sustained because of its accumulated experience in solving a problem with which it had never been confronted. Here's more from John Barrett on Justice Jackson's concern about the separation of powers. He says, I have long urged and still believe that the administrative process deserves fostering in our system as an expeditious and non-technical method of applying law in specialized fields. And applying law is italicized. I cannot agree that it be used. And I think its continuing effectiveness is endangered when it is used as a method of dispensing with law. He says the majority's reasoning makes judicial review of administrative orders a hopeless formality. He says it reduces the judicial process 
in such cases to a mere feint. Jackson is saying, I'm not an enemy of the administrative state. That makes one of us. I believe modern government is filled with technical problems and Congress creates, legislates, presidents sign organic statutes, creating and empowering agencies to bring expertise to these problems. But the point is that law is the channel that defines those responsibilities and how that expertise is supposed to be delivered. I think Jackson's, the vibe of Jackson's dissent, if I can put it that way, is not that this result is an undesirable thing, but the process problem of how the SEC proceeded, and even bigger, the process problem of of how the court deferred to the SEC is what's driving his dissent. Jackson basically has a standalone paragraph that says, I give up. Now I realize fully what Mark Twain meant when he said, quote, the more you explain it, the more I don't understand it. Justice Jackson was clearly frustrated with his colleagues, but proud of his rip-snorting dissent. As Joe Postel put it, Jackson is absolutely astonished at what the court has just done in Chenery 2. He writes quite a nasty dissenting opinion here, and one that he was very proud of. In fact, as we went through his papers uh, at the Library of Congress, we found a bunch of clippings that he saved from newspaper articles praising his dissenting opinion, and also letters that he'd received from concerned citizens, but also from former commissioners at places like the FCC and the FTC who wrote him after the Chenery 2 dissent was published, saying, thank you for standing up for the rule of law. Thank you for standing up for due process of law. And these are former administrators who who praised Jackson's dissent. So I think Jackson knew that this was a really important opinion he was writing. I think he knew that this was uh, an important principle that he was trying to defend. He's also, of course, just returned from Nuremberg. And so I think that's certainly weighing on his conscience as he writes this opinion. Putting the Chinnery ruling in context, this was on the heels of the New Deal era during a time of rapid expansion of regulatory agencies. And this was no longer the Supreme Court of the Four Horsemen pushed back against the Roosevelt administration in the 1930s. As Joe Postel puts it, I think by the middle of the 1940s, the court was not sure where the administrative state was going. I think the middle of the 1930s, of course, is the great confrontation over non-delegation and the extent of power under the Commerce Clause and so forth. And of course, FDR had a showdown with the court. And depending on your understanding or interpretation of that whole process, FDR wins this showdown with the court. It just so happens we have a whole episode about FDR's showdown with the court and the so-called switch in time that saved nine. Check out Justice Roberts is Hot and Cold from season three. But as Joe was saying, I think the court is seeing that everything is at a bit of a crossroads by the middle of the 1940s. And Chenery, I think, reflects the court's ambiguity. Just as Congress hasn't quite figured out what this administrative state is going to look like, I think Chenery, the two Chenery cases are the the court's trying to grapple with it quite inelegantly, not really understanding what the legal issues are, not being very clear about what the Constitution means for the administrative process. And speaking of the administrative process, Congress passed the Administrative Procedure Act, a.k.a. the APA, in June 1946 to formalize how agencies make rules and adjudicate disputes. Discussion of the APA is notably absent from Chenery 2, even though it became law the year before the court decided the case. 
It's odd, given how consequential passage of the APA was. Indeed, the sponsor of the bill, Senator Pat McCarran, heralded it a bill of rights for the hundreds of thousands of Americans whose affairs are controlled or regulated by federal government agencies. As Joe Postel put it, And I think that's a great mystery, one that I've really tried to solve and unsuccessfully so far. Why don't they think about what the APA has done to this whole regime of rulemaking and adjudication by setting up procedures for rulemaking and adjudication? It was Mm -hmm. less than a year after the APA had been enacted, and they've already seemed to have forgotten that it exists. The fact that Chinnery 2 allows a retroactive application of rules is certainly a problem. But just as troubling is the idea that an agency can use adjudication with one regulated party to come up with rules that apply to other regulated parties. Paraphrasing Justice Scalia, those subject to the law must have the means of knowing what it prescribes. Given the choice, what agency wouldn't pick adjudication over rulemaking? The National Labor Relations Board, for example, has sparingly used rulemaking to adopt policy changes, favoring instead the flexibility of adjudication. The NLRB's use or abuse of adjudication ended up before the Supreme Court a couple of times in the 1960s and 70s. As Joe Postel explained, There is a series of cases the Supreme Court has to figure out what it was doing in Chenery 2. And the two big ones are a case NLRB versus Wyman Gordon, and then another one called Bell Aerospace. And there, the Supreme Court seems to back off from the reading of Chenery 2 that we teach in law schools today. It seems to say agencies can violate their uh, the law when it decides to put rules in an adjudication or apply the law through an enforcement rather than make the law and then and then enforce it. But that attempt to sort of limit the scope of Chenery 2 sort of didn't really take off in those cases. The court issued a fractured set of opinions in Wyman Gordon. And in Bell Aerospace, the court disagreed with the NLRB's reading of a statute that set a new policy, but nevertheless explained, well, let's hear it straight from the source. Here's Justice Lewis Powell reading from the bench. We do not agree, however, that rulemaking is required on this issue rather than a case-by-case adjudication. Unfortunately, the NLRB is not an outlier. Take the Federal Communications Commission, for example. It's charged with enforcing a prohibition on broadcasting indecent language, among other things. The agency expanded its interpretation to include fleeting expletives and then fined Fox TV Studios for failing to bleep out three such fleeting expletives during a live broadcast of a music award show. That policy ended up making two trips to the Supreme Court, which ultimately held, well, we'll let Justice Anthony Kennedy take it from here. These broadcasters did not have fair notice of the FCC policy. In sanctioning these broadcasters, the FCC applied the new standard contained in the 2004 Golden Globes order, an order that was issued after these broadcasts took place. And it's a fundamental principle of due process that laws must give fair notice of the conduct that is forbidden or required. Or consider the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which is in the news for trying to hold Amazon liable for third-party sellers importing illegal products. The administrative law judge's opinion is currently on appeal at the D.C. Circuit. A three-judge panel heard oral arguments in March. Check out this exchange between the lawyer for the USDA and D.C. Circuit Chief Judge Sri Srinivasan. If the way the statute brings Amazon in this case within its fold 
means that end consumers are also brought within its fold. I think you have to ask some pretty serious questions about whether that's the best reading of the statute. The department is not spending its time and resources going around and finding every person who orders a single item off of eBay or what have you. But, you know, at the same time, Congress recognizes that, you know, a single product can cause the kind of destruction that it's concerned about. To the extent that there is, you know, a perceived unfairness about imposing penalties without culpability. It's not perceived unfairness in the abstract. It's just what we think Congress intended with the, with the statute. And it's just hard to read this statute or any statute for that matter as reflective of a congressional intention to ensnare end consumers. There's got to be a difference between an end consumer and Amazon or else it's really hard to read the statute the way the government is. Sounds like the government may have an uphill battle. And don't even get us started on the FTC or CFPB. To recap, power has been consolidated in the administrative state in the following ways. Congress passes the buck by delegating broad authority to agencies. These agencies are often staffed with bureaucrats the president and his appointees can't fire. The bureaucrats make rules that have the force of law and then enforce them, or simply use adjudication to announce new rules and apply them retroactively. There are some limits on an agency's ability to make new rules through adjudication. Namely, Congress can expressly require rulemakings, and the reach of rules made through adjudication can be limited to analogous fact patterns. And the cherry on top of this unconstitutional, unaccountable, and unfair Sunday? When a regulation is challenged in court, judges defer to the agencies about what the regulation means, rather than deciding what the best reading is for themselves. We'll get to that last area, judicial deference, in the next episode. But until then, you might be wondering what happened with Christopher Chinnery. As Joe Postel explained, after the Supreme Court ruling in 1947... Chinnery essentially knows he's lost at that point. He liquidates his shares and he gets a small return on his investment, but he doesn't have controlling ownership in the company after the SEC's denial of his reorganization plan has been upheld. It wouldn't be the last time he made headlines. Chenery actually is a relatively famous person, but not because he had two cases named after him in front of the Supreme Court. Chenery is known as a great champion of horse racing and a breeder of horses. And uh, his most famous horse won the Triple Crown. And what was that horse's name? Secretariat, of course. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. Sorry, my uh, microphone keeps falling here. Oh, I used to have that problem. Neither Jackson nor Frankfurter was a frolic on the beach guy. But maybe he took that money and put it towards uh, a great horse. A nice horse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, that's great. I was thinking back to, you know, when I first came to Heritage and hearing you talk about you were working on your, you know, your book and hearing <laughs> you talk about administrative agencies. You've you've been at it since before it was cool. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that was back in like the Bush years. Yeah. So you started calling it chainery.
<laughs> what did I say? You, did I get I in your teenery? head? You said chenery. Chenery. That's what I you always say, chenery. Huh. You got my head. Right. So it looks like they actually have parts or all of three the three powers of government. Not not a problem at all, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Madison would be fine with this. I love all the picking on Frank Murphy. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to be fair, okay? <laughs> yes. Very fair. Fair and balanced on dist. <laughs> <laughs>